0: today about holding back God's judgment. How many of you look at our world today and you realize how wicked man has become? I mean, it's a miracle that God hasn't poured out his judgment on our nation. When we turn on the television, just our, even our forms of entertainment is wicked. It almost is, is, well, it is, it's hypocritical sometimes when we look at these candidates and boy, we're just judging them on everything they do. Both, both sides And then we go home and turn on the cable TV and watch things that we ought not watch. That's how bad that America has sunk, that we entertain ourselves with the deeds of the wicked. This is a a wicked world, and we do things in this country, and we've legalized things that that are ungodly, and we know they're ungodly. And we have to wonder, when is God going to stop and say, that's enough, and I'm going to begin to pour out judgment? Maybe he's already beginning to do that in our nation. But I believe that we can hold back the judgment of God that there are some things that God has showed us in Scripture that we can do to kind of preserve and to hold on to things. And I want to talk to you about that. Uh, Someone asked me if I was going to talk about voting. and, And let me just share this. I'll give you some things about voting. Number one, as Christians, we should vote. I believe that with all my heart. Luke chapter 12 says, to whom much is given, much is required. How many believe we've been blessed in this country? I mean, this is the greatest country on the face of the earth. We have the freedom to worship like we are today. What a blessing that is. And uh, we have the freedom to go out and to evangelize. You know, there are countries around the world today where you cannot evangelize. You cannot tell people about God. You can't invite them to church. You cannot try to convert them to Christ. You can be executed for those things. I read just this last week of several missionaries in in the Middle East that were executed, and among them were a father who was a preacher and his 12-year-old son, and the accusation was that they were evangelizing, that they were trying to lead people to Christ, and so they watched as ISIS chopped the fingers off the young boy torturing him before they killed him and made his father watch, and then they crucified these people. They nailed him up on spikes and left him there for several days. How blessed are we to live in a country like this where we have such freedom? Or just the, the fact that we're going to go home today to a, a wonderful home and uh, we're going to drive in a vehicle and we're going to have a nice meal today. How blessed are we? And so I believe that with those blessings comes responsibilities. And as citizens, we should vote. And so I think we should vote. Secondly, let me just tell you this about the election. Both candidates are sinners. And let me just stress both candidates are sinners. Amen? Um, The Bible tells us though, and, and we should know this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So neither the Democrat nor the Republican can point fingers at one another and say, don't vote for them because they're immoral, because they're both immoral. And we're all sinners, aren't we? And so keep that in mind this year that both candidates are sinners. Isn't it amazing that Neither of these people would have ever thought anything about sin until it comes to election time, and then they want to throw the terms out, don't they? Nobody had problems sinning over the last few years, but now that we're in an election, all of a sudden it's a righteousness test. Both candidates are sinners. Third, let God deal with sin. 2 Corinthians says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether it's good or evil. This election cycle, let's let God do the judging in the sin category. Each of them will stand before God one day, and they'll answer for that. There are so many lies floating around that how do we know the truth anyway? It'd be tough for us to make a judgment call, wouldn't it? We don't know what to believe, but there's a God in heaven that sees everything that goes on. He sees what goes on even when it's been deleted. He sees what goes on even when it was in a dark nightclub somewhere. He sees what goes on even when there were no witnesses. God sees it all. So I would just encourage you to let God do the judging when it comes to sin. And for you and I, focus on issues. Focus on issues. I read Proverbs 31 this week in my devotions and listen to what he says. He says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Basically, what Solomon is telling us is that we have a responsibility to speak for those who can't speak and to defend the defenseless. We're to look out for them. And so focus on those types of issues. There are some very important issues that the church has that we should focus on. And uh, in the coming years, it'll impact our society and our world. And so really try to avoid the distractions of the pointing one another's sins out, and look at the issues when you vote. I'll not tell you who to vote for, but just do it prayerfully. Prayerfully. So in the midst of all of this darkness, and by the way, it's not gonna our country is not gonna be changed from the White House. It's gonna be changed from the church house, isn't it? This is where revival begins. This is where the change begins. And, And to that same note, the country's in not it's not in the mess it's in, I don't think, because of the White House as much as I do the church house. We've stopped preaching what we ought to be preaching. We've stopped witnessing and sharing our faith with others, and we've kind of cowered at some major issues that we should speak up on and preach righteousness. And so keep that in mind as we vote. But I want to talk today about being a light. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks and he says, you are the salt of the earth. And he's talking to Christians here. You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And there are several things that we could look at with that idea of the salt. Salt adds flavor to something. And God could have very well been saying that Christians were left here to make this earth a better place, that it's just a a, a more blessed place because of our presence here. But if we've lost that saltiness and we don't do that, then what good are we? It could be said that salt preserves things they 'd pack things in salt, and, and so we might have been we might be here for that very purpose to preserve righteousness in our land, but if we 've stopped doing that, then what good really are we? Some say that the Jews would take stones at that time and that they would, these stones had a concentration of salt in them, and they would pack their meat with these stones with these rocks, and the salt within them would preserve the meat and they say that that salt could actually leech out of the stones and just leave stones or rocks with no purpose. And that's really kind of the picture he paints here is that if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're just like rocks. They're they're useless. We are tossed aside. He goes on and he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And so Jesus tells us that we're the light of this world. And we all sang that song as little children, didn't we? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But you know what? We don't ever stop letting that light shine. It's not like we go to Sunday school and we're told to let our lights shine and we go to junior church and youth group and we're told to let our lights shine. Even when we become adults and go out into the workforce and into the world around us, we're to keep letting our light shine. And this is a dark, dark world and how desperately we need lights to shine in this darkness. And so how do we do that? Because I believe that if something doesn't happen, that if Christians don't speak up and stand up and become the salt and the light of this world, that we are undoubtedly going to face the judgment of God. We're not the only nation that, is, that has faced it. In fact, if we go back through history and we go back through the Bible and see some of the nations that God judged and judged harshly, that if God were not to judge America for our sins, he'd almost have to go back and apologize to those nations for what he had done to them. We've reached that point, but I think there are things that we can do to hold back the judgment of God. And I want to share with you four things this morning. And the first one is this we can pray. Prayer is so powerful. Prayer is our access to God. Prayer is us calling out to a God who can do anything, who can do all things. And if we as Christians would begin praying, what a difference that it would make in our nation. We're good at talking about things, but we need to be talking to the right person about these things. We're good at getting into political debates with one another on the internet. I read a little thing on Facebook the other day that says, I just cut my Christmas shopping list in half by talking politics online. And I thought, that's not a bad idea. (laughs) Reduce your friend level by talking politics. But what if we, instead of talking online and talking, what if we got on our knees and began to talk to God about our great nation? That we began to pray for it. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses is up on the mountain. And by the way, we're, we're looking at Moses in, in Sunday school. And if you're not going to Sunday school, you're really missing a blessing. We're going verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And it's just been great uh, seeing how Moses and God used Moses and provided for his children. But in Exodus chapter 32, Moses has gone up on the mountain to receive the commandments. And in verse 6, it says, and they rose up early the next day. This is the children of Israel and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. You notice how God changed the tune in when he sent Moses into Egypt, he said, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now that the people are messing up at the bottom of the hill, God tells Moses, go down because your people are doing this. Some of us do that with our children, don't we? When they're good, that's my daughter's. When they're bad, those are Kathy's kids. Kayla is at a competition in Cal Poly this weekend, and I'll just be proud and say, my daughter took place. Next, when Kathy comes home and sees the mess our house is in, I'm going to tell her, that's your daughter's fault. He says, they've corrupted themselves. Verse 8, and they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And I think that word quickly stands out, doesn't it? How quickly we turn from God. How quickly things change. And when you think about history with Israel, they spent 430 years in Egypt. God delivers them and it's not very long that they get into the wilderness and they go right back to the gods of the Egyptians and they begin to worship them. And you've got to look at our lives, how short a span we live, and how much God does for us, and how quickly sometimes we forget, and maybe turn to false gods. Or even in America as a nation, we're only a little over 200 years old, and we believe that God blessed this country, and yet how quickly we've forgotten that, to the point where God is basically been kicked out of our schools and kicked out of any public places, and we want to keep God out of everything. So the children of Israel are down on the valley floor, and they're worshiping at this golden calf. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 9, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Surely that was not a free will Baptist congregation. Amen. That had to be a Nazarene church or a Pentecostal church. or something. It couldn't have been Free Will Baptist, right? We're not stiff-necked. He said, this is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. God says, I'm about to bring judgment on this people. They're worshiping other gods. They've forgotten what I have done for them. They've forgotten the deliverance. They, they, ha- they are dancing around. And he says, I'm going to destroy them so that I can make a great nation out of you. But Moses, in verse 11, implored the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses goes to God in prayer. God expresses to him, I'm going to destroy this people. And Moses turns to prayer. Prayer can turn the hand of God. It can hold back the judgment. And and he says, God, don't do this. He says, if you destroy them, Egypt will look and they'll say that you had an evil intent, that you brought them out just to destroy them. God, remember the promise that you made to, to multiply them and make a great nation of them. And Moses is not saying that they didn't do wrong, he's pleading for God's mercy look at verse 14. It says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God answers prayer. And sometimes we get so discouraged in this country of ours, and we begin to look around and we say, we have just reached a point of no return. This, this nation is gone. It's done. It's over. But when we look at scripture and see that prayer changes things, it should drive us to our knees that we pray for our country. That we ask God to have mercy on us and, and acknowledge God as a nation we have sinned and we have done wrong and there are atrocities that occur legally in our nation and things that should never happen anywhere and God, they've disregarded you but God, have mercy on your people. And it might be that the Lord will relent from the disaster that He's planned on us. Prayer works. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, we all know this verse. God speaks and he says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, doesn't that sound familiar here in the valley? When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What a promise God gives. He says, this people, even when the judgment has already begun to start, even when things have begun to look bad already, he says, if my people would turn to me and pray and seek my face, repent, leave their wicked ways, I will forgive them and I'll heal their land. You know, in America, I don't think necessarily that God is waiting for our politicians to pray and to turn and to repent. As much as he waiting for us as the church to seek His face and pray and repent. God answers prayer. James chapter 5 illustrates to us how powerful prayer is. In James 5 and 16, He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. And then he goes on to say that Elijah prayed again and the rain began to fall once again. That even when God was showing a nation his power and his might and punishing an evil king, Elijah was able to pray to God and God opened up the heavens once again and brought down rain. Prayer is powerful. And so rather than getting discouraged in our world that we live in, as Christians, it's a call for us to pray like never before. Every time we have a president we don't like, we often hear people say, well, you should pray for him. What if we just prayed for all of our leaders? Regardless if they were Democrat or Republican or Indian, what if we just prayed for them? What if we prayed for our senators and our congressmen? You know, What if we just prayed for our nation as a whole? God, give us a light. Help us to turn back in the right direction. The second thing that can change this world is righteousness. So we've seen Israel. God spared Israel because of Moses' prayer. And then we move to Genesis, and we find that righteousness can make a difference. In fact, Proverbs 29 and 2 says, when the righteous increase the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. The King James says, when the righteous are in authority or when they rule, people rejoice. And so we look around us sometimes and we say, well, the reason we've got so many problems is because there's wickedness that are ruling the land. That might be part of it. But I think the righteousness of God's people, not necessarily the rulers, can make a big difference when it comes to the judgment of God. In Genesis chapter 18, God has come down and He has spoken to Abraham. He has noticed the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we often, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of evil, don't we? I mean, that's just the, the, as wicked as wicked gets. And yet, I think our nation is just as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. We're doing the same things that they did. And so God said, I'm going to destroy this nation. But there was a problem. Abraham's nephew, Lot, was living there with his family. And so in verse 23, it says, then Abraham drew near and said, and he's speaking to God, he says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, are you going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if the righteous are living there? Are you going to wipe them all out together? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So he says, God, won't you spare it if there are 50 righteous there? And let's see how righteousness makes a difference. In 26, it says, and the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. What if that's what God's looking at in America? What if that is what has kept us going as long as we have? Even amidst the the, the vile things that take place in our land and the moral decay in our country, what if the thing that is holding back God's judgment is just the righteousness of God's people? That we live right. God said, if I found 50 there, I'd spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose fit five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So God once again says, even if you found 45 there, I'd save that city. I'd hold back judgment. And I think Abraham knew from the beginning he probably would never find 50 there. I think he began with something he thought God might go for. And then he began to work his way down from there. He says, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. In verse 29, again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there righteousness matters, doesn't it? He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Righteousness matters. You kind of get the feeling that God would rather not destroy this nation, Amen. that God would rather bless them and have mercy on them, that he's holding out. And you and I, sometimes we hear people say, I just can't believe in a God that would judge the world and send people to hell. I think God has illustrated all along that he'd rather not do that at all. Amen. To the point that he sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son to this earth, to, be, live, to live a life of humility and to be nailed upon an old rugged cross, a cruel death for us. I think that illustrates to us how much God wants to bless us. Righteousness matters. In verse 32, then he said, Oh, Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Just one last time, God. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Righteousness matters. Ten, he said, I'll not destroy it. And I got to think in Abraham's mind, he's thinking, I know lots there. I know my nephew's there. He's a God-fearing man and his children are there and his wife's there and, and surely there's 10 of them. But we know the story. There weren't 10. But in verse 33, and he tells, shows us here that the patience of God will eventually stop. That eventually God will bring judgment. It says, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abram, Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. But he got it down to just 10 righteous people could be the difference between destruction and salvation. The difference between a land continuing to exist or a land being destroyed by God. And I say all that to say this, brothers and sisters, the way we live our lives as children of God matters that no matter how wicked this world is around us, it might very well be that it is God's children who are living righteous lives that preserve this great country of ours. And sometimes we, we kind of downplay righteousness and and we kind of begin to slide a little bit and we let up on our Christian faith and we allow things into our life that don't belong there. We're not doing things maybe that we should be doing. And we so desperately need to get back to living holy and righteous lives for God. It matters. It makes a difference. It could very well hold back the judgment of God. The third thing that we can do is illustrated in a land called Nineveh. And it is the preaching of God's word. And it is just God's word in general. You know the story. Jonah is called as a missionary to go to Nineveh. And he doesn't want to go there. And it had some reasons for not going there. The Ninevites were not known to treat Jonah's people very well. They were a wicked people. And so he didn't want to go. He went the other direction. God caused a storm. They threw Jonah into the sea. A big fish swallowed Jonah He swam around for three days praying, repenting. I'd repent if I was in the belly of a fish. And the fish finally spit him up on the shores of where else but Nineveh. And you see the prophet go marching in with determination. God has set him straight and he marches in and he preaches repentance. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This is after he's been spit up. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in in his hands. In verse 9, he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said, said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The preaching of God's word made a difference. We need to be so careful that we continue to preach the word of God. That we don't come up and just preach earthly philosophies, that we don't just come up and preach feel good sermons, that our preachers don't become ones that will tell you how you can prosper and how you can get ahead in life and how you can have more friends in life, that we preach what God says, that we preach and let people know that there's a heaven to go to and there's a hell to avoid, that there's no reason for us to perish because God sent his son to die for us. We need to preach that one day Jesus is coming again and every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Preaching can make a difference. It made a difference in Nineveh. And by the way, I place the emphasis on preaching the word of God. Because I think when you look at the story, I don't think Jonah was that great a preacher, really. I mean, we know he was rebellious. He wasn't really wanting to do God's will. And after this great revival, Jonah goes and sits down and cries about it. You'd think he'd be shouting and, and, you know, you'd just think he'd be excited. God moved and a whole city turned to me. But Jonah gets upset. And God says, what are you so upset about, Jonah? And he says, because I knew how you are, God. I knew that if I preached your word, they'd repent and you'd forgive them. Now, what kind of preaching is that? I just don't think there was a lot of enthusiasm in it. I don't think Jonah was begging people to come to the altar. I don't think he was playing some tearjerker altar call song and and saying, come on down, please give your heart. I don't think he wanted them there. But the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he simply delivered God's word and it made a difference. Sometimes I wonder if preachers said less of their own words and more of God's words that it would make a difference too. The word of God will make a difference and when we look at how evil our land has become, we know how desperately we need God's word more than ever before. We live in a generation that does not know right from wrong. They really don't. They do evil things and and have no idea that it's even wrong. We've removed all ideas of of absolute rights or wrongs. They'll tell you, well, it's not always right and it's not always wrong. Sometimes it could be wrong, but right. And sometimes it could be right, but wrong. And we need to know that God's word is true, that it's the one thing that we can always trust. It does not change. And so for Nineveh's sake, it was the word of God. So we have prayer. We have the word of God, amen. And then I want you to see once more, we'll look to Israel. And in fact, we were in this passage in Sunday school. God is about to bring judgment on another nation, a great nation, Egypt, a world power of its day, but a wicked nation, a nation with many false gods, a nation that was afflicting God's children. And so God has brought nine plagues upon the Egyptians He's turned their water to blood. He's sent toads in there. He's caused their cattle to get sick and die. He's brought boils upon them. God has done nine horrific events in Egypt. And the people are still hard-hearted. Pharaoh, most of all. But God is about to bring a tenth and final plague. He is about to destroy the firstborn in every home. He's about to bring Pharaoh and Egypt to their knees. And so he offers a way of escape. In Exodus 12 and verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign on the houses where you are. And what God had instructed them to do was take an innocent, spotless sacrifice, a lamb, and to kill the lamb and to apply the blood to the doorposts of the house. And he tells them here, when I go through Egypt tonight and when I bring this plague of judgment on them and destroy the firstborn male in each home, when this occurs, if you have applied the blood to your door, I'll pass over you. I'll save you. And he says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And the final thing that we can do to hold back the judgment of God is simply salvation. Not the blood of a lamb or a bull or a sheep or a goat, but the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only son, applied to our hearts, washing our sins. You see, I think judgment eventually will fall, not just on America, but on this world. The Bible's very clear. But just like he gave a way of escape to hold back the judgment of God, he also gives us that way of escape. And there's a day coming when the only way we'll escape God's judgment is if we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that we've allowed his precious blood to wash away our sins. You know, there were folks that night that did not apply the blood. There were Israelites, God's people applied it, and then there were some Egyptians that applied it, but not everyone did. You look at that and you say, it was so simple. It was so simple. They just had to believe what God told them and do it. You know, one day when the Lord returns, there'll be many that have applied the blood of Christ to their hearts. But just like the stubborn Egyptians, there'll be folks that did not believe, that did not listen, that rejected. See, I think we can hold back the judgment of God if we're faithful to Him. Pray like never before. Christians, that's our responsibility. That's what we do. We pray for people, we pray for our nation. We can be righteous. And we've got to look at our lives and begin to ask ourselves, am I living a godly, righteous life? Or have I begun to live almost as much like the world as if I just blend right in? Do I shine as a light in darkness? Do we honor and respect God's word? It can hold back the judgment of God. It can change things in this nation. And have I accepted Christ as my personal savior? Because ultimately that is the way to escape the judgment of God. Has the blood of Christ been applied? Let's stand. Dear God, we thank you so much for this day. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, we know that one day you will return. We'll hear the shout.